is dependent on me. And I said, well, if I go too long, everybody will get scared and leave. So I'm going to keep it somewhat short. Um, I'm a, a seminary student at uh, Pittsburgh Reformed Presbyterian Theological Seminary in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Um, so for all of my Ohio uh, brothers, I just want to say, go Steelers, first of all. So I'm, I'm waiting for something to come at me here. So, um, But we're about two hours away. I brought my daughter Macy here with me. Uh, my wife and two youngest children stayed home. Sometimes it's difficult if, if uh, they're feeling under the weather or whatever. Traveling can be, can be difficult, so uh, I trust that you'll understand that. Uh, but I find something every time I travel to a different church to preach, um, you can really tell when people get the gospel. You can really, there's almost an atmosphere of people who understand grace, the grace that's been shown to sinners like us in Christ. And, and oftentimes when I go into a church, I can tell in just a couple minutes, when, when people come and, and just embrace us and, and shake hands and give hugs and, and try to uh, inter, entertain our family and just show love to us, it's, it's always a wonderful thing. And I've experienced that thus far here at Tabernacle. So thank you uh, for, for showing us love and, uh, and living out the grace uh, that is found in the gospel of Christ. Uh, I'm, I'm so excited to be here. And uh, I just uh, it's my hope and prayer that the Lord would bless this and that we would be edified in, uh, in the gospel of what God has done for us in Christ here uh, this morning. <clears throat> well, if you have a Bible, please join me in the gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 18. And I was a little bit nervous when we did the, the children's sermon. I thought, oh no, he's going to steal my sermon. <laughs> I might as well just walk out the door. So, uh, But we're at Luke 18. We're going to be studying another tax collector here this morning. Not Zacchaeus, uh, but another tax collector. <clears throat> we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 14. And the title of today's sermon is The Right Kind of Righteousness. The right kind of righteousness, as we went over this morning in our reading, Romans chapter 3, again another text that was taken, I'm going to be referencing that again here this morning, uh, that we don't have righteousness of our own. And because we don't have righteousness of our own, we need a covering of righteousness. We need what's called an alien righteousness, an, a righteousness that's imputed to us, that covers us on the day of judgment, that takes away our sins and has us declared right with God. Jesus in the Gospel of Luke has been explaining the kingdom of God and what it looks like and how one comes into the kingdom of God and how one is given a new heart. He references in John 3, but he's, he's explaining this in, in a more full context throughout the Gospel of Luke, throughout all the Gospel accounts, really. And he's been healing people, proving that he is in fact God in human flesh. In Luke 15, Jesus describes the story of the lost sheep who've gone astray who've run away from the shepherd. And, and Jesus says, I've come to rescue these lost sheep. The good news that is the Gospel is that even though we are lost sheep, our shepherd has come to rescue us, to redeem us, to draw us back to the Father. <clears throat> the shepherd throws away everything in pursuit of his sheep and brings them home. And the angels in heaven rejoice when just one sinner comes to repentance. He didn't come here to save the righteous as we talked about with Zacchaeus. He came for sinners, which means you qualify. He came only to save those who have, who have rebelled and ran from God, but He has come to make peace through the blood of His cross. So, 
Hear now the reading of God's inerrant, infallible, and inspired word. He, that's Jesus, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And they treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, and the other, a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Ladies and gentlemen, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Join me in prayer for illumination this morning. Father in heaven, we come to you humbled, knowing that we can do absolutely nothing apart from your grace. Lord, we come to you humbly seeking that your spirit would guide us here this morning. Lord, I come to you as a broken vessel, asking your blessing, Lord, to speak through me, to feed your children here this day. Be with us, give us hearts that would hear and hands that would would act out the word that you've given to us today. We ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'd like you to know that there are approximately 4,300 different religions in the world. 4,300 different beliefs, different religions, different paths, so-called, to God. Some beliefs are very old, dating back thousands of years, dating back before Jesus was even born. Some are very new, just within the last couple hundred years. Seems as if you turn on the news, there's a new religion propping up everywhere. If you do any kind of evangelistic work, you find that people just make up their own religions almost on the fly. They just come up with things, and you think, where on earth did you come up with that idea? Religions are of all shapes and sizes, different uh, ages, how long, how old they are. Some worship animals, some worship nature, some worship themselves, and some worship one another. But most of them try to live a somewhat decent, moral, upright life. But it has been rightly said that there are really only two religions in the world. There are all other religions who try to work their way to God, and then there's biblical Christianity. Essentially, all other religions state that if you're a good person, if you do enough good things, and God's in a good mood, when you die, you'll go to heaven. But the hero of that story is yourself. There is no glory given to God. Biblical Christianity, however, states there's nothing you could possibly do 
to earn right standing with God. If you could, you would be the hero. You would go to heaven and and people would worship you for what you've done. But instead, the Bible says that we can't boast in selves, but instead we boast in Christ who's done everything for us. If you could earn your way to heaven, it would be more of a bribe, more of a way of paying off the judge. But the Bible tells us in, in unambiguous language that God is just. He cannot be bought. Your sin outweighs your good works and there's no way that you could possibly get there on your own. Because you are totally depraved and sinful, you need a Savior. I'd like, you to walk, I'd like you to walk with me through this passage of six headings, the six B's, of how we need a Savior, who that Savior is, and what that Savior's accomplished and how He's done it. Well, this passage, I think, is uh, an excellent story of, of the true requirement to get into the kingdom of heaven. And we see that displayed in this tax collector. Well, the first heading I'd like to look at this morning is boasting in self. Boasting in self. This comes from verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with, with contempt. You can see how Luke here, as, as he uh, lays out this, this account of Jesus, that, that he explains why he told this parable. For those who trusted in themselves... This whole parable is directed at those who put their faith in themselves, in their works, and their church membership, and their baptism, and their giving, and everything they've done. But nothing of Christ, nothing of the Savior. The whole parable is about self-righteousness. Those who boast in themselves. We see here that Jesus uh, is talking to about a Pharisee. Now Jesus has a very difficult time with Pharisees if you've read through the gospel accounts. This is his, his biggest antagonist are the Pharisees. The Pharisees were, were, were separatists. They, they were separated from the rest of the people of Israel. They were the most religious people. They, they studied the Torah, the Old Testament law. They started when they were very young. By the time they got older, they had big passages of the Old Testament memorized. They studied the original languages. They, 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 they saw how uh, because of their knowledge that they were somehow better than everyone else. Now Jesus, as he uh, gets into a debate or condemnation, really, if you will, with these Pharisees, he, he calls them hypocrites. You blind guides, you fools. You serpents, children of Satan and vipers. There's no doubt that Jesus hardest time on earth was dealing with the most religious people on the planet who should have known that the Messiah has finally come. There is salvation come to us today, but instead, no, they trusted in themselves. They boasted in self. Now you can see here that the Pharisee in verse 11 tells us that he, that he stood by himself and he prayed thus. He, 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 didn't, he didn't go somewhere privately to pray to God. He, he didn't say, I'm a humble, broken sinner. I don't want to be around everyone else. I need to seek God's face. No. He comes up, I, I can just imagine him with a, with a puffed out chest and, and says, now everybody watch me. Watch how I pray. I am righteous. 
I am good. I am better than you. I thank you, God, that I'm not a sinner, that that I'm not like other men. Do you see this blinded arrogance that he has? (laughs) For a man so versed in Scripture, he really didn't know a whole lot, did he? I think of the Old Testament passages where King David, a man after God's own heart, writes in Psalm 143, Don't put your servant on trial. Don't test me. Don't put me on trial because no one is innocent before you. Even the Old Testament shows that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Or Psalm 14, that the Apostle Paul quotes, The Lord looks down from heaven on the entire human race. He looks to see if even one is truly wise. If anyone seeks God, but no, all have sinned. All have turned away. All have become corrupt. No one does good. I know that we, we referenced it here this morning, uh, but I'd like to read a little bit of Romans here again, just because it's so good, and we can't ever forget uh, this passage in Romans. So if you would, Romans 3, flip over a few pages. Uh, and I'd just like to kind of look at this again just for a moment. <clears throat> Romans 3.10. None is righteous. No Not even one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. All. Do you see that? All. Every single one. That includes this Pharisee. That includes this tax collector. That includes you. And that includes me. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. And he goes on and on and on. Verse 18, I love how he says, There is no fear of God before their eyes. No fear of God. Do you see that in this this Pharisee? A fear of God is a reverence. It is a humility. God is holy. I am not. I need to check myself, check my heart before I come and seek the face of God. That's not what this Pharisee does. God, I thank You that I'm better than everyone else. I wonder today, do you have a reverent fear of the Lord as you come into worship? Seeking His face and the guidance of His Spirit as we come to gather here together, confessing our sin and our humility, our our need before God to be declared righteous, for our sins to be taken away and, and us to have peace with God. This Pharisee has no moment of quiet prayer, but again, as a separatist, he separates himself from everyone else just to get everybody's attention. You see this? Jesus warned us of praying like this. The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6. Do we remember? When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. They love to pray in public. Everyone look at how great I am. He says, no, go away. Go privately. Close the door and seek the face of the Lord. This Pharisee spent all of his time boasting in himself. 
boasting in himself. Well, the next heading I'd like to look at is what I've labeled a beautiful facade. A beautiful facade. Look at verse 11. We're back in Luke chapter 18, verse 11. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. On and on and on. You know, this morning, that's what I love about the Presbyterian Church. My family really is new to the Presbyterian Church. I love that we gather together and confess our sins. The church where we're in, we do a public confession where we read together, and then we take a few minutes to do a private confession of sin. That's so important to understand, to, to, to take off the facade, to take off the mask. Lord, here I am, a sinner, and I'm coming to you humbly. That's not what we see out of this man, do we? The definition of a facade is an outward appearance that's maintained to conceal a less pleasant or credible reality. Essentially, it's, it's a pretty cover to hide something that's ugly. Well, imagine if you're working in construction, let's say, and uh, you're, you're to uh, put new siding on a house, for example, and, and there's a chip in the siding. Well, instead of doing the right thing and taking off the siding and repairing it properly, you just kind of slap something over it. It's just a facade. It looks decent on the outside, but really there's a hole. It's, it's, it's ugly. It needs to be fixed properly. It's, it's a man who, who's filthy, who needs, who needs to take and get washed up and clean, but instead he, he just says, well, I'll just, I'll just uh, throw on some deodorant and I'll be okay. I'll just kind of mask the stench of my own sin. Or biblically, as, as we talked about this morning with Zacchaeus, it's a dead man. A dead man. You were dead in trespasses and sins. And we just try to dress him up. We just try to, to add maybe some good works or some little reforms and, and think that, that that will somehow make us right. No. You're dead. You can't just put a facade on that. You need to be cleansed. You need a, a new heart. I will take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, says the Lord. This man just cared about his outward appearances. As long as I can fool everybody, they're going to think I'm, I'm somebody, right? Well, I wonder what your attitude is as you come here. It's time to put on the mask. We're going to church, right? Let's, let, let's make things kind of look good, right? doesn't mean that we come in here without sin ever. But do, do you come in with an open exposing the open sin that the Lord may cleanse us and, and guide us? Or do we just try to cover it up? I'm not that bad. I'm not, I'm not, like, I'm not like Joe or John. You should see their lives. They're messed up, but, but not me. No, we need to have this sense of humility as we come to the Lord. And this is just simply being washed, walked out in real life as, as Jesus. I love how he gives the, in Matthew 23, the, the, he's addressing the Pharisees. You hypocrites, you're whitewashed tombs. You're full of dead men's bones, but you clean the outside. You have this facade that it's somehow going to make you look good. But I know, I know your heart. You need to be cleansed from the inside. The inside out. Jesus' whole ministry is directed at the heart of men. 
It's not simply good enough to have a good outward appearance. But Jesus comes for the heart. A heart that needs to be cleansed. That needs to be made new. That needs new affections and new desires. Given by the Spirit of God. He even condemns us through our hearts. One of the things that drove me to the Lord for salvation is I read the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus says, listen, you you think that, that outward adultery is the only place where it stops? If you look, if you look, you're already guilty. You think that murder is wrong? Yes. But if you have hatred in your heart, you might as well go kill the guy. I see your heart, and your heart has you condemned. When we just look at the outward deeds, everyone is guilty. Everyone is guilty. That's that's one of the reasons for the law, is to condemn the entire human race. Look at the law of God. Look at the Ten Commandments. No one can stand under that weight. But then Jesus goes to the heart. And who can stand? No one. And if no one can stand, guess what that means? Everyone needs a Savior, which is the whole reason why the Lord Jesus has come down. Don't cover yourself in a beautiful facade. Bring your heart open to the Lord. I love how the Word says that it's it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It can cut between soul and spirit and, and fillet your heart that it'd be bare before God that you could just simply call upon His mercy and cleansing. Well, the third heading I'd like you to look at is the boundless pride of this Pharisee. The boundless pride. I thank you that I'm not like other men. I'm not like this tax collector. I'm not like uh, this woman over here who who doesn't have her life together or or that guy over there. I'm better than all of them. The proverb, proverb 16, 18 tells us that pride goes before destruction, right? We build ourselves up with how good I am and then everything comes crashing down. You ever notice that the, the letter I is right in the middle of the word pride? Pride, everything revolves around me. I'm in charge. I'm God. I run my own life. That's not what the Scripture calls us to. That's boasting in yourself. That, that's, that's, that's boundless pride, where, where I am the God and author of my own salvation. No. No, it's not. But this man doesn't understand that. I, uh, I, I first uh, built this using the New Living Translation, which I like how it kind of unfolds this a, a little bit more um, in verse 11. Uh, the ESV has extortioners, unjust adulterers. Uh, but in the, the, the New Living Translation, it says, I'm not a sinner. I don't cheat. I don't steal. I don't commit adultery. I'm not like this tax collector. I like, I like how it kind of gets a little bit more direct, I think. And, and look at how he's, he's, he's just highlighting the things that he does. I fast twice a week. (laughs) I give a tenth of my income. This is a guy who, as we pass around the offering plate, looks around. I gave more than I gave more than they did. Do you see how much money I gave their pastor? (laughs) He's just boasting in himself. He just has this unmitigated pride. Look at me. 
Everybody look at how great I am. Where's the glorification of God? Where is the honor given to God? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, not yourself. This guy comes into the temple and he pretends like he's worshiping God, but what's he doing? He's worshiping himself. He's singing his own praises. God, look at how wonderful I am. Aren't you so glad that I've blessed you with my presence here this morning? But if we're honest, we can fall into the same trap, can we not? I go to church. I'm volunteering more than other people in the church. I give money. I live a decent moral life. I'm not as bad as my neighbor or the guy on television. God must have a place for me in heaven. I sing in the choir. I give. I live an overall decent moral life. But see, this is the problem. We cannot justify ourselves. No one is good. We should read that passage to ourselves every single day. No one is good. You're not good enough. You missed the cut. You fell short of the mark. We need someone else to save us. We can't do it ourselves. I've become a pretty big fan of Charles Spurgeon, uh, who was in England in the 1800s. Um, <clears throat> led revival. There were, there were hundreds and even thousands of people converted under his preaching. And he says that uh, the greatest enemy to human souls is the self-righteous spirit, which makes men look to themselves for salvation. The biggest problem that we have, the problem that all other religions in the world have, is they look to themselves. I want to tell you today, if you have any faith in yourself any faith in your own works, your faith is not in Christ. It's not. You're trying to have one and the other. Well, I've got, I've got one foot on Jesus and one foot on my baptism, church membership, giving, everything that I do. No. Christ is the solid rock on which we must stand. All of our faith must be put into Christ and Christ alone. In this level of boundless pride, you cannot save yourself. If we could work our way to heaven, we would spend all of eternity listening to everyone brag about how good they are. I don't know about you. I don't want to go to a heaven like that. Guys, I'm here because of everything I've done. No, 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 no. I want to go to heaven and worship the Lamb who ransomed his soul to save mine, who lived and died in my stead, who saved me while I was a lost sheep. <clears throat> Fourth heading, bribes from a fool. Bribes from a fool. Verse 12, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. I, I, I. This is just building on his own level of pride. I do this, I do this, I don't do that or that. I can get myself right with God. And this is exactly the difference between biblical Christianity and everybody else. All other religions think they can somehow work their way to God. If I read my Bible enough, if I give enough money, if I do enough good works. Now, to be very clear, these will come from a believer. They will come from a believer. 
But those are just the fruit. The root is Christ. The root is the new heart that we've been given. The root is faith in Jesus and His perfect work to save us. And when we get that, when we meditate on that, when we understand that, you just can't help but love and give and serve, right? Because of how loved I've been. Because of what the Lord has done for me. If you lived a thousand lives and did nothing but serve and give and volunteer, you still wouldn't make it. Because even your best works have sin-stained hands. The wrong motive, the wrong desire, the wrong attitude that will never make us right with God. If you think that you can work your way to God, you have a very low view of God, right? What we need to understand, this is where grace is so important. God is infinitely above us. Don't even think for a moment that you can somehow get there. Because if you think you can work your way to God, guess what? God's actually, He's not really that great. He's not really that holy. He doesn't actually stand in unapproachable light. He's just a little bit above us. No. Our righteousness is filthy rags. We have nothing to bring to God. There's a chasm that cannot be breached. God's holiness and our sinfulness. We can't somehow climb ourselves up by our bootstraps and make ourselves right with God. Well, how high is the Lord? Matthew 5, verse 20. Jesus says, I, I warn you here, unless your righteousness is greater than that of the scribes and Pharisees, you won't go to heaven. The first time I read that, I thought, wow. Now, how can my righteousness be better than the most righteous people on the planet? Because the righteousness of God is revealed through faith in Christ. And Christ's work is imputed to us. We have to understand that our righteousness is not good enough. That we need a substitute covering of righteousness. Anything that we bring to the table to try to justify ourselves is simply bribes from a fool. Bribes from a fool. Next, I'd like to look at the broken spirit. This is where things start to really get good. The broken spirit. Verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. Be merciful to me. A sinner. Can you feel the helplessness that this man is under? He doesn't come to the front of the service that everyone would look at him. He doesn't even go get into a prayer circle. No, he stands by himself, ashamed that he's even in the presence of God. He can't even look. He can't even lift his head. But he's hopeless and in despair because of his sin. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This man realized in perfect clarity that he was completely and totally doomed. In the original Greek, this word uh, 
and be merciful to me or have mercy on me translates literally to turn your wrath away from me. Because of our sins and trespasses, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. God is an angry God with the wicked every day because of our sins. And, and, and the sins are building up God's wrath. And one day, it will come crashing down. And we're all under that wrath by nature. Children of wrath. And this man hopelessly cries. Helplessly cries, rather. Turn your wrath away from me, God. I know that you are holy. I violated your law. And I am due punishment for my sin. Turn your wrath away from me. I bring nothing. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Turn your wrath away from me. But this here is a requirement to enter into the kingdom of heaven. <clears throat> Until a man knows that he's lost, he'll never be found. Until a man knows that he's first God's enemy because of his sins, he'll never be God's adopted child. Until a man knows that the wrath of God abides upon him, he'll never cry out for God's mercy. Until a man knows that he's on the broad road leading to destruction, the broad road leading to hell, he'll never get on the narrow path that leads to life. There's no amount of money that he could bring like this Pharisee. There's no amount of fasting he could do. There's no amount of self-righteousness or, or look what I've done or haven't done that he can claim. He has nothing. Empty hands. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness. It's not his own. He saw himself broken, sinful. God's enemy because of his sin. And his only hope, and this is the only hope that you have, this is the only hope that I have, is God's mercy. God, be merciful to me. God, turn your wrath away from me. In Psalm 51, <clears throat> David, who also wrote the, the universal condemnation psalms, he's confronted by the prophet Nathan. Remember, he tells the parable of a, of a sheep, a man who has many sheep, the big flocks, herds. And there's one man that has this one little lamb. And he cares for this lamb, and he, and he looks after this lamb. And this, this rich king with, with thousands of head of sheep and cattle and oxen takes this lamb and slaughters it. And Nathan said, what should you do with this man? And David cries for his blood. As sure as the Lord lives, this man must die. And Nathan says, you are the man. You stole Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, committed adultery with her, got her pregnant, and then killed Uriah to cover your tracks. You are the man. And David, in, in, in Psalm 51, cries this wonderful uh, song of repentance. He's convicted under his sin. He falls down weeping, just like this man does. Oh God, be merciful to me. He says in verse 16, you don't desire sacrifice. There's nothing I can do to try to take this away. You don't desire sacrifice. If you did, I'd give you one. 
You don't want a burnt offering. If you did, I'd give it to you. But the sacrifice you truly desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and contrite heart. Oh God. I want to tell you today, that's a promise of the Scriptures. God will not turn away a broken heart. A heart that comes to Him and says, Oh God, I have sinned. Have mercy on me. Not not a worldly sorrow that, that says, I'm sorry I got caught, but a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Lord, I'm sorry not that I got caught, but that I sinned against You. That I've sinned against my brother. Have mercy upon me according to your steadfast love. <clears throat> Lastly, I'd like you to note the biblical justification. The biblical justification. <clears throat> this is found in verse 14. Jesus says, I tell you, this man, that's this, this tax collector, this, this wicked, wicked man went down to his house justified. Justified. Rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. <clears throat> this man... This Pharisee, this sinner, this Zacchaeus, this man sitting here today can leave justified by faith in Christ. In terms of theology, the word justified, that's, that's what everything hinges on. Everything comes down to the doctrine of justification. How is man made right with God? That's what every religion tries to answer. That's what every sect of Christianity tries to answer. And again, like we said at the beginning, there's only two. Man justifies himself or God justifies man. The Shorter Catechism, question 33, asks what is justification? Like, okay, so this is the most important doctrine. You have to know this. What is it? Question 33 states, justification is an act of God's Free grace, free grace, wherein He pardons all of our sins, past, present, future, all of our sins, gone. How? He accepts us as righteous in His sight, only for the righteousness of Christ, imputed to us and received by faith alone. So you might ask, how can this wicked tax collector who's, who's been a cheat to his own people. The tax collectors sold their Jewish rights and they worked for the Roman government as, as, a, as a traitor. And they would, they would go to collect taxes and they would say, well, you owe me $100. But actually you owe me $120, right? And that money goes right into their pocket. These men are rich, they're powerful. If you put up a fight, you're in serious trouble because they've got the Roman government behind them. How can this wicked traitor be justified? I'd like to look at Romans 3.23. I absolutely love this verse. If you could flip over just for a moment. This is how everything comes together. There's many passages that Paul drives home on justification. But I love how he explains it here in Romans 3, verse 23. 
Now he spent, remember we looked at uh, verses 10 through 18, condemning everyone. No one's righteous. You're not righteous in your own state. You have to understand that. You have to remind yourself of that every day because we're so quick to say, I'm not that bad, I'm okay. No, no one is righteous. No one does what's right. No one uh, has a fear of God. You're not good enough on your own standing. So Romans 3.23, he, he brings a universal condemnation and then he tells us how everything culminates. Let's read. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Some translations uh, will say, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but, so, so they'll, they'll hinge that, right? They'll transition from the bad news, you've sinned, you didn't meet the standard, but the good news. Justification is, a, is an act of God's free grace. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. I love the... Uh, all the buts in the Bible, right? Man is wicked, but God. You were dead in trespasses and sins, but God made you alive in Christ. You have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but God has offered redemption through Christ. It says that Christ was put forward as a propitiation for our sins. This is a biblical term. Propitiation. This is a a covering this is, this is Christ has come and lived in our place. Where we failed, He completed. Where we sinned, He was perfectly righteous. <clears throat> Paul doesn't say anything resembling the Pharisees' claim. Paul, Paul, who wrote Romans, is a Pharisee, right? He says in Ephesians, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was the top dog. Guess what? I'm the chief of sinners, he says. I'm the chief of sinners. I have fallen short of the glory of God, but I've been redeemed by God's grace in Christ. This tax collector left home justified because he looked forward to the coming of the Messiah. Now, Christ hasn't been crucified yet. He hasn't been resurrected yet. The Spirit hasn't been poured out at Pentecost yet, but Jews in the Old Testament were saved by faith in Christ Just like today, we're saved by faith in Christ. So he's looking forward to God's mercy displayed on the cross. His atonement, his propitiation, his covering of sin. And that's our hope. That we did not make the standard. We missed the mark. But God, who's rich in mercy, has sent forth his Son. And everywhere that you failed, everywhere that you were a cheater and a liar and a thief, be honest, take off the facade and look at your heart. You're not good enough. But everywhere where you failed, Christ has completed the work. He's fulfilled the law. And when He goes to the cross, He who knew no sin, God made to be sin for us. That in Him, by trusting in Christ, we become God's righteousness, declared righteous by faith alone. 
So as we leave, I'd like to ask you just a couple of questions. I'm pretty blunt, by the way. So bear with me. Are you justified? Answer this question for yourself. Are you right with God now, today? Don't leave here not right with God. Are you justified? Are you right with God? Have your sins been washed away? Have you been declared righteous? If you're not today yet a Christian, be exactly like this tax collector. This is salvation right here. God, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. Cover me in your alien righteousness that was Christ's. Save me from my sins. Give me a new heart. Because <coughs> a broken and contrite heart, the Lord will never turn away. Well, if you are a Christian, let's embrace this. Good grief, this is good news. And I get somebody to say amen. Wicked sinners, tax collectors, broken. Lord, I failed. Have mercy on me. And that's exactly who Christ came to save. Sinners. Sinners who would simply call upon Him for salvation. Well, with that being said, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the good news that Jesus came to save sinners. Father, may we all leave here today knowing that we are, in fact, this tax collector. Lord, if any of us so quickly jump back to the Pharisee self-righteousness, drive that away from us, that we may every day be humble. Lord, have mercy upon me. I'm a sinner. Lord, I pray that we would meditate upon this day and night, that this gospel would drive our lives to grace and love and truth. Lord, may we sing your praises now and forever that you have shown mercy to sinners like us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.